Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. Uh, so today, we are going to be discussing Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, Phantom Thread. But before we get into that, we just wanted to quickly share some news that if you follow us on our various social media accounts, you will already have heard. Uh, but for those of you who don't, we have recently launched a, a Patreon, which we're very excited about. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, basically the way this works is that it's a crowdfunding site where you can uh, sort of subscribe to pledge a certain amount of money to us every month and for that money get exciting rewards such as blog posts and mini episodes and the type of money we're talking about here is like one or three dollars. Yes. Our most popular pledge amount is three dollars. Yes. Which gets you like bonus episodes. So it's pretty solid and it pays for us to exist. Yes. We currently pay for things like web hosting for the podcast, which is uh, annoying. Uh, and for the movies we rent every week, and it would be a great boon to us to get me a better microphone. Uh, some of you have complained about the audio before. So... There are just a number of things that would be made better by us having some money in addition to all the hours that we spend on this every week. And we would really appreciate it if you would uh, contribute one or three or more of your dollars per month if if you are able to do that. Uh, so you can... My life's dream is that someone picks the basically <laughs> fake high reward number which is like most of them are like reasonable normal amounts of money but then we have a special diamond tier <laughs> where if someone or perhaps a group of someone's who conspire together pay a hundred dollars and this forces morgan to watch the star wars prequel trilogy which she will not watch under any other circumstances this is my dream i know it's not realistic we're happy for you to give us like one buck but um but if you're a millionaire movies, and you yeah. really want me to watch those horrible films then that there is a way to achieve this. It was wonderful film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can find that link on our Twitter, our Tumblr. It will be in the show notes. You can also go directly to Patreon at www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We will be reminding you every week <laughs> for indefinitely. You can go um, there and see our beautiful shining faces. Asking for money. <laughs> yes. So that's the end of our little bit of self-promotion. And now let's move on to The Hungry Boy. <laughs> oh my goodness. This this film is really, it's very close to my heart. Yes. So I feel like we should lay some groundwork here. Which is that this movie was made, as I said, by Paul Thomas Anderson, who is my favorite director. Directed my favorite film, There Will Be Blood, which I have mentioned many times. and. You had never seen any of his films, I think, until no. last week when you watched There Will Be Blood. And I was very anxious because I thought, if Gao doesn't like this, I'm going to have to process it. Like, this is, it's, I'm going to have to really get through it. And fortunately, that did not occur. And then you immediately then saw this film. It's just a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson for you. <sighs> They're both so good. I'm going to watch Ooh. The Master at some point in the near future. I need yeah. to like take a run up to it because I know it's really heavy. But yeah, There Will Be Blood I loved. And I was also a bit concerned for the same reason as Morgan. Because while Morgan loves it, we don't love all the same movies. And my housemates really dislike There Will Be Blood and think it's like emblematic of toxic masculinity. Which it is intentionally. But like, um, you know, I'm like... Fucking, I would literally watch that movie with my mouth physically open, which is what James Cameron wants people to experience, but he has not yet managed to articulate artistically, whereas Paul Thomas Anderson has made that, he has come to fruition. And um, Phantom Thread, God, it's just just such an experience. And like, I, I'd really kind of avoided finding any information out about it. So I knew, you know, I'd seen the trailer, so I was like, it's going to be about a lot of dresses. I like dresses. I like kind of men with fussy haircuts and I know that everyone involved is very talented and I'd seen kind of an article somewhere about food that I'd carefully avoided reading thankfully because it's full of spoilers but like I love food so there's a lot of positive things went into this film and there were some unexpected elements I'm not sure how we're gonna have to handle spoilers here I know a lot of listeners won't know what happens in the film I think we'll discuss some specifics later on but um 
there's some unexpected bodily functions in this movie <laughs> that I was just very into, very into. Yeah, this movie has been quite divisive, which is interesting. I think most of his films are a bit divisive. I think basically everyone loves There Will Be Blood, um, at least in the sort of film critical community. Not that it's everyone's favorite movie, but I think it, I mean, it ends up at the top of most sort of best films of the, you know, millennium so far blister but it's about like you know the death of the american dream whereas this is a romance movie and it's about like an older man and a younger woman but it doesn't follow the framework that you would expect well right so the master and then this and also inherent vice which was his last film which i despised have all been had more mixed receptions i would say and but it's interesting because this film everyone i know who has seen it like personally which isn't that many people, but enough that it's a small sample size, loved it and had basically the same reaction to it. And it was all sort of young women of our age exactly went to this movie and were like, fuck yeah, like this is great. <laughs> and I just find that really fascinating. And again, it's a tiny sample size, so it's not like I've pulled the whole country, right? But I just, I'm really intrigued by the fact that people are having such polarized responses to this. And my friend, Nicole, whom I saw this movie with, and we came out and we were just like, yeah, (laughs) this is great. What she sort of observed about the people who really don't like it, and I'm not trying to invalidate that as a response, obviously, but I think she was right, is that she said the people who don't like it think that it's a movie about him, meaning Daniel Lewis's character, and actually it's a movie about Alma played by Vicky Krebs. And I was like, that's exactly it, right? So just to kind of give you like a small precy of what this film is about, the main character played by Daniel Day-Lewis and the main character (laughs) played by Vicky Krebs are, um, it's set in the kind of 1950s um, and Daniel Day-Lewis's character, uh, Reynolds Woodcock, is this extremely kind of high class dressmaker with a private fashion house, which at this point was like the original concept of a fashion house, which is he literally lives there. There's a bunch of seamstresses who are there and do all the work. He does the designing and he has very close personal relationships with rich patrons who are all kind of duchesses and so forth. He lives a very controlled life um, where every part of his day is very carefully organized. He has very carefully organized diet. He's very fussy. He's very controlling. And he lives with his sister who also is similarly a nightmare. Um, And she's nominated for um, Best Supporting Actress Oscar. And you know from the start that he is clearly kind of goes through like a serial relationship thing where he'll date like a younger woman and then she'll kind of move in and then he'll discard them. So it's a bit like a a muse archetype. But like Morgan said, it's not one of these films where it's a sort of, oh, look at this like troubled middle-aged man who's having an affair with a younger woman and it's sort of his perspective. It's very balanced and also from like the very first moment you're like, oh, okay, yeah, he's shit. But he's shit and you can understand the appeal, you know? Um, and it's like they do acknowledge that Daniel Day-Lewis is very handsome, which also helps. But like um, Vicky Krebs's character Alma is a waitress who he picks up in like this little like Yorkshire hotel where she's working and she becomes his muse and moves in. The film is kind of about like the power dynamic within their relationship and how it shifts and how she kind of starts to understand how he works and also buy into the kind of cult of personality around the concept of him as a genius. Well, I think what's so interesting about it is that she kind of does buy into it in the sense that she clearly loves the world and she loves the clothes and she, she clearly does get off on being the muse of him and she loves him like she very obviously loves him and she just evidently decides rapidly that like she wants him and that's her goal and i think probably some of the people who are not responding to the movie don't like that and so the fact like don't like the fact that that's what she wants is him because he's a little shit and like that's fine but also it's clear that 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 her character like she's in love with him and she wants him and you have to just be like well that's fine yeah. but what because their their first date is him like measuring her for her body for a dress and at first you're like well this is very like sensual and then like about two minutes in his horrible sister shows up and starts making judgmental remarks about her body and you're just like it's really fucked up and then the next scene after that she she's like going to London being like well I'm moving in this is great yeah. <laughs> Although I would push back on you saying the sister is horrible. I love the sister. I think oh, no, the sister I... is 
great. <laughs> and you also get a very clear idea of how both of those siblings, who are now like in their 50s or 60s, have both grown from the same family background. Yeah. And have this very kind of balanced partnership and working relationship. Yeah. But the thing about Alma, this woman, is that even though she is really into this world and wants to be a part of it, she definitely doesn't buy into his mythos in the same way that almost everyone else does. Like, she remains very grounded as a character, and I think a lot of that is in the performance, too. Like, Vicky Kreps is so incredible and remains very relatable. It's not exactly the word I'm looking for, but she just seems like a normal person. And yeah. so she's kind of looking around. And there's around. no makeover. She always right. looks exactly the same. She doesn't wear makeup. There's a lot of elements of this movie where you can tell that Paul Thomas Anderson has like intentionally not made the obvious choice. So the one that I immediately picked up on after I watched the movie, I was emailing Morgan like, did you notice that no one symbolically pricked their finger with a needle? Because there's all these scenes where someone's sewing and you expect them to like draw blood. And it's like, no, we're too subtle for that. The only kind of unsubtle, not in a bad way, but the only kind of obvious character point is they make it really clear that Alma's never wearing makeup. So she never kind of becomes more smooth. She's always the same person. And for a lot of the time, she's just wearing like a smock because she's working in a in like a the sewing seamstress room. Yeah. So it's a combination of that, the physical element, and also her just kind of being like, this, this asshole. <laughs> oh, man. Right. Um, and so that puts you firmly in her perspective, because even though you get seen plenty of scenes where she's not in the scene, he is this ridiculous man baby. Like, he is a baby. <laughs> There's a scene where he's talking to this sort of, like, bitchy, I don't think she's a countess, but sort of countess-type woman who's like, oh my god, you married a toddler. And it's like, no, that's not accurate. <laughs> like, the actual thing that has happened is that she is an adult woman who has married a toddler who is, like, 60 years old. <laughs> Because like it's, it's so great because it's like this perfect depiction of someone who is, he is genuinely a genius, he's really highly regarded, and he's created this world around himself where everything is catering to his creative process. So there's a lot of kind of detail about how he has to have like perfect silence and like at breakfast there was this beautiful scene where one of their early breakfasts where they've cranked up the kind of sound on Alma's breakfast so you can hear like the toast scraping really annoyingly and he's just being disgusted and like his sister is smugly being like he prefers the quiet otherwise it can disturb him all day and it's like you're fucking just shut up and it's like the perfect it's not a parody because it's perfectly realistic but it's like the boss from hell like auteur director artistic wanker thing there's just not even a slight hint that the film is endorsing it like if you come out of this movie being like god it's just so sexist that she's in this relationship with this shithead and he's just really picky and terrible and i'm like no she definitely (laughs) volunteered for this and also the film also makes it really clear that he is terrible (laughs) well and this is why i got on board with it i liked it the whole time but around maybe 45 minutes and the first time i saw it i was like oh no this is great because i realized like he's an idiot baby and he's also not moving the plot forward at all no. Like, he's an object in the film. Because the whole point is that he's stuck in his routine. And it exactly. is the classic thing where it's like, oh, you need, like, a young woman to spice up your routine. But you literally don't, because having these young women is part of his routine. And right. it's very cyclical. The point is that he has to learn and change in order to mature. And everything he's set up around himself, you know, people have been helping him be in a point where he never learns or matures. Yes. Because the only purpose of anything he does is to make pretty dresses. And they even make a point where essentially he's not progressing artistically because women are starting to move towards more modern fashions and want something that's chic. And he is just living in this kind of world of basically being like a royal couturier. Yes. And she's the one who comes in and is young and not like modern in a fashion sense, but is like young and alive and has a different perspective. and all of the things that happen in the movie are happen because she has done something and you're seeing it from her point of view. I mean, she literally has the voiceover in the film and then certain other things happen because his sister has done something like it's the women in the movie that are actually making things happen. And there are like two male actors in like the whole film, basically like this is the opposite of what you were saying about the post the other day right yeah it's literally just like a million women because he's working in this house full of actual real seamstresses whom they hired to be in this film because you couldn't possibly train actors to do it correctly that quickly i was just i was Um, so amused as well because like when i was 
I didn't know at the time that they were real seamstresses, but like in every scene where they have the workshop, I was like, first of all, this is the most realistic thing I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> but also it's like, it's amazing how little has changed because if you go into like the main creative rooms at like high-end fashion houses like Dior or whatever, they still have like a white artist's table with like a piece of canvas over it. And it's surrounded by middle-aged women in hairnets wearing white lab coats. It's literally not changed in 50 years. It's the same way it's done, been done forever. They just have like better electric lights now. And it's so great that they literally just had those women working in there. It was like a bunch of seamstresses who do all the restoration work of the V&A or something. <laughs> Must have been tons of fun. You're actually getting that call? Like, yeah, sign me up. Sounds great. Well, like... Apparently, the set where they were filming was such a hellhole that Vicky Krebs at one point had a panic attack. Well, what happened was that it wasn't a set. It was a house. It was a house. And so it, it wasn't in terms of like social stuff. It was because the house was so full of like materials. It was just like you're not wires. supposed to shoot in spaces that small if you have that much going on. Yeah, and he said in all the interviews, like, it was basically a terrible idea because they just couldn't, like, it was too many people in too small space. And it was, like, literally central London, which is loud and crowded. I mean, thought there were people there in the 50s, but, like, the sound situation was also just, like, not good. (laughs) So, yeah, it was very stressful, it sounds like, but the end product was good. But, uh, yeah, I mean, to talk about the technical stuff briefly then, I guess, I mean, the clothes are, it's mind-boggling. Like, I don't understand how it was possible to achieve this. I mean, I, I, obviously I loved the clothes. I was also fascinated by the fact that it's not a clothes movie at all. Like, I'll, I'll link to the food article yeah. um, that I spoke about earlier. It's more of a food movie. But also, like, I think the article doesn't even cover all of the food stuff. It's, yeah. like, actually quite basic. But... This film, I think, from the trailer, you can definitely assume, oh, there's like a historical twisted romance and there's a lot of fashion stuff. And it's like, there is minimal scenes where someone is walking around in a ball gown. But the thing that I really liked was that the only way in which we see the physicality of clothes in film is when the many, many scenes where you see people getting laced up in corsets and that sort of thing and being like, oh, isn't beauty pain, right? But in this, they show stuff that like you just never consider about 1950s fashion, which is like the idea that they were still essentially wearing like a crinoline. All their kind of torso shapes are completely different and you've got these pointed busts and everyone's wearing like boned clothing and it's like the the fabric they're using is really stiff and rustly and it actually sometimes looks just weird to modernize like it's just like what are you doing you're wearing like a tube you know (laughs) and it's like it's great because it's like we have this contemporary 1950s set films are they exist in like a cartoon world of the 1950s where it's like oh you're wearing like a puffball skirt it's like a modern vision it's like rockabilly stuff whereas this is legitimately these really fucking uncomfortable gowns and it's really fascinating to watch this after the crown which obviously also has gorgeous ball gowns and stuff but it's very much like you're viewing it from the exterior rather than watching someone getting measured up with 19 different measurements and then like crammed into some fucking cone bra (laughs) (laughs) yes i also one of the first things i noticed the first time i saw it like literally the first or second scene this actress whose name i can't recall but she's been in a ton of stuff she was in like Notting Hill and naked she has a very recognizable English face. yes she's wonderful um, you will recognize her from Notting Hill yes uh comes in and is getting fitted and she's you know she was in Notting Hill she's a middle age now right and her flesh actually moves like human flesh and her the, all their faces are lined like normal human faces in this movie and their bodies move like human bodies which is so important for a movie about a dressmaker right because his whole life is built around other people's bodies and also his clientele is by definition like older women right because it's like he is not doing the cutting edge of fashion he's also like working for very rich people who are all duchesses so yeah of course it's women in their 50s who either are like i'm stately and confident or like there's one woman who's you know onto her second or third husband and is having like a fucking nervous breakdown and they just never explain any of her backstory it's just her performance is this fantastically like over the top but pinpoint accurate like drunk depressed middle-aged woman you know she's based on a real person I assumed she was, but I don't know anything about what the, what she was based on. I'll find... I don't remember the details. There was some woman who wrote a book about that woman, I think. Or maybe it was about the man the man she was getting married to. And apparently, like, went and saw the movie and basically freaked out because she was like, oh my god, I think that 
he has to have read my book because that's the only place that anyone has ever written about this. There was a fashion designer um, who the character is like roughly based on a little bit. Very, very roughly. Yeah, it is like, not even it is not even slightly like biopic. This is very much an original film, just no, to be no, clear. No. But this, yeah. this like fashion designer yeah. made dresses for this woman and her husband. And there's like a thing about getting visas for people in Nazi Germany that is like a reference to this. It's like one line in the movie. But like the whole story is just wild. Um and this woman is so drunk in this movie and depressed in a way that's like Oh my god. But all the all the women he's making these clothes for, even the woman I was talking about right at the beginning of the movie, there's no she, there's no story to her. She just kind of shows up. But the mm-hmm. actress is so good at just emoting with her face. And maybe there was something that they cut from the scene. Like, I don't know. They all are really distinct and all feel like real people. And you can tell how he has sort of integrated himself into their lives and they're the kind they're at the level of wealth where they're now kind of like friends with the people who sell them things and in this case he literally makes things for them so it's even another level of intimacy and i just found all of that stuff so compelling which it easily could not have been because they're not on screen for that long but i think it is really important to make the movie work because he can't just be a monster yeah. Right? Well, the thing like, that's really fascinating about seeing his interactions with these customers is you can see him turn on the charm, yeah. but it's not done in a superficial way like, oh, look at how charming he is with his customers. You can absolutely see why and how it's so effective. Yes. Because obviously Daniel Day-Lewis is a genius, so like he is one of the best actors in the world alive. But, um, you know, you, he just has this way of making eye contact where you can absolutely see that the person he's speaking to is the only person in the room. But he doesn't use that in his personal life. Like, on the first meeting with Alma, he is seductive and he does have this, like, focus, but the interactions they have are very different. Whereas when he's interacting with his clients, he's got this very specific method. And even though you know it's false, it doesn't necessarily seem false. Yes. Because I actually don't think it is false, per se. The the drunk woman, he does not want to have to be making her dress. But when he's talking to the others, you know. I think it's... Obviously, it is a transactional relationship but i like he obviously is consumed by his work and i think that they start the movie with this one woman for a reason which is that he clearly derives such great pleasure from creating this dress for her and making her look beautiful and they obviously have some kind of relationship like she says it's like we've been through so much together, like, it's been so long, and he then goes and sees her, she's some kind of, I think she is a countess or a duchess or something, and she's, like, going down the stairs to this, like, you know, grand occasion or something with her husband, and he goes and watches her from the balcony, and then he and his sister go off, and so I think you can actually tell that this is where he's been getting his emotional fulfillment in his life, and then, like, sleeping with these young girls, and it's all regimented, right? So, yeah. like, it's coming from a transaction. And then when Alma shows up, he, like, doesn't know how to function because she's actually just a normal person <laughs> and wants to, like, have dinner. Yeah. Like normal which is people. Very, which is very, um, like, tropey, but it doesn't isn't executed in that tropey way because I know it's very classic to be, like, oh, it's a romance with, like, a difficult man and he's brought down to earth by, like, a normal woman. It's like, that's not how that happens. No. Um, <laughs> But also, like, what you said about him sleeping with these younger women, I didn't even really notice until after I'd finished the film. But then I looked back on the movie and I was like, it's very interesting and also a really great creative choice that there is no sex scenes. And their courtship is completely about power play and food and clothing. And at one point you see, they kiss a couple of times, and at one point you see them kind of going into a bedroom. But it's not like the first time, it's just there was a point where they're going into the bedroom. But that's it. I don't think you even see Daniel D. Lewis's elbows. <laughs> He's no. wearing like a, a like a fill suit at all times. Well, this is an interesting thing about Paul Thomas Anderson movies. There may there's one scene with a naked woman in Inherent Vice that is absolutely just repulsive and made me so mad. Like it is it's clearly taken directly from the novel, but that's not an excuse. It's just awful. But I don't think it's actually a sex scene per se. I don't think he's done a single sex scene since Boogie Nights. 
which is really interesting because Boogie Nights has a lot of sex scenes, as you would imagine. Boogie Nights, for those of you who don't know, is about the porn industry in California in the 1970s. And the sex scenes in that are not titillating, as you also might imagine. But it's fascinating that he made that movie and then was like, perhaps I will not do that ever again. I mean, who knows what the future might hold. But this film is also heavily influenced by... Um, classic films of the 30s and 40s and like he's talked about Rebecca a lot on the press tour and it's very obvious that like if you've seen Rebecca it's pretty clear that that and then like other similar films are coming into play here and it's not like this is a pastiche or anything like that but if you think about it from that perspective then it does kind of make sense because obviously none of those films could have any explicit material because of the Hayes Code and it I think makes this movie a lot better that there isn't any of that because it doesn't need it. Like it's all implicit. I mean, not the fact they're having sex, like that's very clear, but it it's just a lot smarter than that. I think and you just don't need to show it. Right. And it's also the film is very like high class in a way that having them have sex, like not that I'm saying that that, Showing that is a bad thing at all, but it wouldn't fit with the tone of the He's movie. He's so like British and yeah. buttoned up, and it, it's all about him kind of showing his vulnerabilities. And we know that sex isn't a vulnerability because he's been having sex with like these other women, and it's yeah. like not meaningful at all. Right. I mean, he yeah. literally in like days of beating this woman is like, "Come move into my house." <laughs> like, like, okay, sure. Have me pin clothes on you and make mean remarks about your body. <laughs> oh my god, that yeah. scene is just... Oh, it's unbelievable. The whole thing. I mean, what I can't believe is that I didn't make the Hannibal connection until like a day later. I, I have not thought about this. I mean, it's obviously not like a direct connection, but it's very much in the same vein of kind of psychological romance that's being transmitted through fashions and control and like yeah. power plays and food. They're not remotely similar, like I would not compare them at all, but yeah. it's like in that same wheelhouse of it being like a kind of highly romantic relationship that like they don't need to show the sex. Yeah. Well, this the movie's dedicated to Jonathan Demi. So who was who died the last day of filming, which is very sad. But he was like one of his great one of Paul Thomas Anderson's great mentors. And he loves Silence of the Lambs. So perhaps you're on to something, Gabriel. <laughs> Um, well, there's two things to discuss before we go into spoiler territory. One, we should say something about the music, which is like just. I have listened to the soundtrack twice in the past 24 hours. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I don't even know where to begin. I bought it and have listened to it over and over and over again. It is a work of art, even independent of the film, but then I, I. We started, I got back from the movie theater and we started recording this immediately. I just saw this movie a second time. And having listened to the soundtrack a bunch of times, then watching the movie again, knowing the music, it's so much more powerful than with the images. Like the whole thing is just, it's Johnny Greenwood, who's from Radiohead. And who also did the music for a bunch of other Paul Thomas Anderson movies, including um, including There Will Be Blood. But I've not actually looked this up, but I am absolutely certain that he, while researching this film, watched a bunch of 1950s fashion reels. Because parts of the music, like obviously like any kind of movie score, it kind of is variations on a theme. But certain scenes, the music sounds like the music they have on the background of like mid 20th century fashion reels, um, which is like basically the fashion shows that you just see in the film. So if you've seen this movie, um, I also recently watched like, like the classic 1930s movie, The Women, which is a famous movie, which has a cast of about a thousand women. And it has like a long fashion show sequence in the middle, which is like just people walking around wearing clothes to this music. But it is that music. And then he just has these different, like there's one which is like a Paganini violin, like a solo like variation. One of them, like a bunch of them are like romantic soaring orchestral scores. It's just, oh God, it's so good. Well, Paul Thomas Anderson talked about where they'd gotten, what music they'd listened to trying to come up with stuff for this on one of two podcasts I listened to today. I will link to both of them. And he listed about 15 things, none of which were that. So... Either he just was keeping a secret or uh, forgot 
Or well, it could be that if he's listening to 1950s like movie soundtracks, then I imagine there might be a lot of overlap between what they were using in that and what they were uh, using in fashion reels. What I remember, he said he listened to Glenn Gould a lot. And then they were trying, they were thinking about like maybe some Eastern European music for Alma and they tried to find some Luxembourg music and there just is not very much. <laughs> and then I can't remember where, what else he said. There was some David Lean movie that apparently you like can't find anywhere that he referenced, but it was really interesting. There was one, he was on Fresh Air and then he also did a talk after a screening at the DGA with Ryan Johnson, who was doing the the questions, which was really fun. So um, that one was more technical. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, um, I would recommend listening to those. He's a good inter- interview. He, he's very chatty. He's very, very Southern California, which is always fun very... and chill. Yes, which is hilarious to me, given most of the films he has made, which are and he's not... like the, also like what basically like one of the most acclaimed living directors in the world. And like one anecdote that I actually found out from via someone on Twitter today about this film is that he didn't have a cinematographer on this film um, but he himself is not credited as the cinematographer because he's like it was a collaboration between me and the crew which is wild in a couple of ways because it's like I think that a lot of the times when the director is credited as the cinematographer obviously they're not physically holding the fucking camera so it's like a grip or whatever but uh, like also he is just like crediting a team because he's like well I could never call myself the director of photography that's just not what I'm good at and it's like can you imagine like the lack of ego like just just, like handing the camera and it looks beautiful like you would never know yeah yeah he said in one of these interviews that he basically like he's worked with Robert Elswit who's one of the sort of most acclaimed cinematographers in America um several times before and I I don't know if he couldn't do it for this or if he was busy doing the famous film Robert J. Israel Esquire ah there you go which I've heard does not look good like like i mean literally like is ugly so i don't really know what happened there but uh he had worked with the lighting crew on a couple of it must have been like music videos because he does a lot of those um and that he was just like yeah i think this will be fine <laughs> like let's just do it and evidently it was fine because it's gorgeous like it is so beautiful so yeah, I mean, I just don't, I can't imagine being that good at something, like making, like, I. it's just mind-boggling to me. It was also really interesting, so I wanted to go see this again last night, and it was sold out, wildly enough, and then I tried to watch Boogie Nights, and I made it through half an hour, and my internet connection was so shitty that I actually had to give up, but, no. I know, so I have to finish it at some point, but um, I watched that movie ten years ago, and I haven't seen it since then. And I remember thinking it was great, but it's been a long time. And I've seen a lot of movies in the past decade. And I realized watching just the first half hour again, like, A, it's incredible. It is so fucking good. But B, it is literally a Robert Altman movie, like, without exaggeration. And Robert Altman, he was his big, like, his biggest mentor. He worked as an AD on a number of his movies which he may actually have done after he made boogie nights and before he made magnolia although i don't remember the timeline but like he was for years he was compared to altman because he made these huge sprawling movies and then all of a sudden he made like punch Rock love which is bad but then like there will be blood and the master and then like totally different kinds of things but it was i it was just wild to me watching it because i was like oh my god this isn't a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, even though it is. Like, it's a Robert Altman movie, and it is a perfect imitation of Robert Altman. Like, it's incredible. But it was interesting to watch that. And, like, based on this uh, half hour I just rewatched my memories of it from 2008, I would recommend it to anyone. It's great. It's on Netflix in America. But um, it was interesting to watch that, kind of, and then watch Phantom Thread, which is the latest one, because you can totally see how starting with like there will be blood basically he went from at like 26 making boogie nights right where of course at 26 you're going to be imitating someone else you think is really good to then figuring out what his own thing actually was and now he's totally like perfected it but the deviation from that in the past 10 years was inherent vice which was the last film he made which as i said i hated and all of his movies basically are about sort of toxic 
men, almost all of them. And they're all um, almost all historical dramas, but no one ever describes them as historical dramas. Yes. they're like too classy, but like they're fucking historical dramas. Yeah. Well, Punch Drunk Love is not, and that I just watched that for the first time and was severely disappointed. And I was like, oh, I should have just watched this years ago instead of like saving it as an experience. It's a fucking like quirky early 2000s like rom-com there's a harmonium like it is adam sandler wears a bright blue suit the entire time we'll get that one a miss do not watch it you would hate it so much but in that movie like he's a shit man but he isn't presented that way and i was like oh after this he figured out that this was like (laughs) maybe working with adam sandler made him realize what men are perhaps um and then Inherent Vice is, like, very closely adapted, I understand, from the Pinchon novel. I haven't read it, but my it, it's, it's, like, a huge book, so obviously I had to cut a lot. But I my understanding is that it's a very close adaptation. And um, I, apart from that movie, my feeling about him had always been, like, he makes movies about men, but they're about, about toxic masculinity. And there are a few really good female characters in his movies, but they're just not his focus. And... The movies speak to me so much and I love them so much that I was sort of like, well, it is what it is. It's just what he's doing. And then in Here in Vice, I think, is like a deeply sexist movie in a way that really upset me because he was like my favorite filmmaker making this just like nightmare piece of shit. And I was like, oh, my God, like no. And then I am fascinated by the fact that he followed that movie with this movie. Like, I really wonder what happened in his head for him to be like. Perhaps I fucked up. (laughs) Maybe Maybe it was the Jennifer Lawrence reverse muse. (laughs) Right. Like, people have been comparing this movie to Mother, which is beautiful to me. Have have we not discussed this? No. Right? It's the anti-mother. It's the anti-mother. Yes. I mean, if you've not listened to our Mother episode, go go check that one out. But like, Jesus fucking Christ. I mean. Right? To put it mildly, we did not like Mother, and this is indeed the polar opposite. They are both about loosely conceptually a similar idea, but like could not be more different in every respect, artistically, philosophically, gender roles. Right. So Just... <laughs> to move into spoiler territory. Yes. So the you sent me this and I had, had seen it already, but he got the idea for this movie, or at least part of the idea for this movie when he was really sick and his wife, um, Maya Rudolph, a, a genius comedian, was taking care of him. And like, he obviously tells the story better in interviews, but that she was like, totally like, so kind to him and kind of looking at him with this expression of like, uh-huh, like, I am in control now. And he was like, hmm, this is interesting. And th- thence this movie was born. And there are some scenes of illness in this film and so but he it's does also fascinating because like they so the first seed is like about maybe one third or halfway through when you see alma like you see the point where she's like the the, the bright spot in the fact that their relationship is generally quite like toxic and he's obviously really just unpleasant in this very restrictive life but every time after he's finished a fashion show he's just really vulnerable and he's kind of lying in bed and he's really open and he's like a child almost, but he's like, he needs hugs and stuff. And she's, you know, she really loves him and it's like in his moments of vulnerability. But then I I think most people are not going to be predicting that she later on is like, I think I should orchestrate this. So like half <laughs> halfway through, she, she poisons him with mushrooms from near his country house. But like in... A kind of normal psychological drama. This is like her trying to murder him. But no, she wants him to just be really sick. And so she can take care of him. So he's like really fucking ill. And she's just like loving it. And he's really vulnerable. But like he does not know until the end that she did this on purpose. Well, he gets sick. And then the next morning is like, want to get married? And they've just had a big fight before this. And then they get married and he immediately is like, actually, this sucks because I'm a baby. And then she poisons him again, but he figures it out and eats it anyway. <laughs> and the final Amazing. scene of the movie is her just like cooking it. And you're like, oh, she, there's going to be like a big blow up thing. And then he like, with just incredible romantic intensity, like eats this like poisoned mushroom omelette. 
he's really sick and it's just like beautifully romantic and you're like that is fucked up and very amazing very beautiful love story there just really just gross and marvelous they found each other it was perfect i was tremendously satisfied the more i think about it the more i'm just like just just wonderful (laughs) my friend and i left this movie and there was this old couple behind us who said to each other what a beautiful romance (laughs) and we were like I don't know if that's exactly how I characterize this. <laughs> but the more I think about it, the more I'm like, yes, those old people were correct. This is a beautiful romance. <laughs> like, pretty fucked up, but that's okay. Like, it's acceptable. It's um, like literally like the first thing I did after coming out of that movie was just like tweeting fucking like Fifty Shades of Grey jokes, which is like, it just, it's such a serious and intense film, yet it, inspires so much shit postings like she literally refers to him as a hungry boy which is hilarious it's, it's hilarious it's, it's a very funny, funny movie. movie all of his movies are really funny and i think oftentimes audiences don't quite know whether they're allowed to laugh or not because they're also really dark and fucked up and this one i was like no this is just funny like a lot of it isn't funny but yeah it's there's definitely some stuff that like you are supposed to laugh Reynolds Woodcock is a scary and intimidating person and Alma's in this really difficult and twisted situation but his fussiness is just inherently very funny because he's a preposterous person who's it's like any any story about fashion artists is almost invariably funny in the same way which is that they're living in this like false world where talent is everything but it's also like the utmost level of frivolity treated with like military precision well also like he just because he's such a Baby, Spoiled baby. Even beyond that level of like, I'm obsessing over like, yeah. minutia. He's like, don't make noise when you're buttering your toast. Right. And, and doesn't have... like even try to understand her like emotional mindset at all. <laughs> Their big fight, which they have over this dinner that she cooks for him that he doesn't want her to cook for him. Um, he literally is like, are you a spy sent to like kill me and destroy my life? Am I behind enemy territory? Where is your gun? Because she's made asparagus the wrong way. It's like funny. Please. Um, and it's hilarious. Like, he's, it's he's really like, funny. He's not particularly intelligent. So, like, he's not very smart because he's just being, like, a fucking idiot baby. And, like, she... Vicky Krebs' performance, as we've said several times, is incredible. In that scene, she's this great performance of someone where we know perfectly her entire emotional mindset for the entire film. Like, there's always completely obvious to us in, like, a wonderfully articulated, subtle way. But in this scene, she just can't articulate herself what she's feeling. So she's trying to explain in what is her second or third language, why are you being such a distant shitbag when I'm, like, living with you and I'm effectively your wife and all this stuff. But she, like, can't articulate it and he's not listening because, like, he's never had to listen to anyone because he's living in a state of stasis where he doesn't have to absorb any kind of emotional impact for anything. Oh, it's, it's great. And this is kind of why... People have talked a lot about how totally weird this movie is and or reacted really badly to it because it's so unhealthy and on and on and on. And like, I don't, I just don't think they're that weird. I think this is the point of the film. Like, obviously, most people do not poison their husbands. Yeah, the only weird part is the poison. And the poison is literally the solution. (laughs) Like, the fact that they found their weird, like, kinky diarrhea situation. (laughs) He throws up. He doesn't have diarrhea. Let's be, let's be clear. It's it's vomit. It's not the other way around. Um, And I think in some interview, obviously, he's been asked a lot about the state of Hollywood, etc. In relation to this film. And he definitely was kind of like yeah you can never know when something is going to land and it is really sort of strange this has happened now but it like wasn't um, intentional <laughs> no not at all and i think i think it's a really feminist movie personally but he said he was like he's not like a monster like he kind of is the sort of like typical 50s fashion guy like this is kind of what they were like and i think that's the point actually is that still now but particularly in the past if you were like a straight woman and wanted to get married to a guy you kind of had to put up with some shit like men have always sucked (laughs) like and she does love him like it's clear that for whatever reason she's decided that this is her man and she just has to figure out how to make him behave and that answer to that is poison it's like you know that's fine but like he is awful and it's not like as you said the movie isn't ever excusing him 
But I also don't think he's presented as uniquely awful. Yeah, and I mean, you don't even need to be a stupendous mega genius to get that kind of treatment. Like, literally yeah. go to, like, any college campus on the face of planet Earth and there will be one creepo professor, the stereotype of the creepo professor, who is some guy who's much less attractive than Daniel T. Lewis, but the same age, who's dating some fucking, like, 20-year-old undergrad. Yeah. You know. Um, and she, a friend who actually works as a, like, clothes maker, and so she saw this movie and was like oh my god like it's all so accurate like she was like loving it she really liked the film but she was comparing Mickey Krebs in this like she was making a comparison to Gone Girl and I was like no that's totally wrong because the woman in Gone Girl is the point is that she's completely out with the normal bounds of human society right and like in in my friend's defense she was sort of saying like that movie isn't as or like that book and movie aren't as interesting to me because it was more extreme and this is like more sort of human but I think even putting them in the same category is totally I didn't see that that way at all yeah I mean the thing that's unusual about the relationship in this film is the intensity you know what it is this really intense sweeping romance and that's why it works yes and it's a movie so well yeah like of course it's going to be like a heightened version of reality right but I think if you watch it, part of what's so wonderful about that performance is that she completely just feels like someone that you or I would know. Like, she's just a woman, and and what also is appealing about her is that she's totally beautiful, but she looks like a person. She, and that's also how they've made her up, and the fact and that she they like, haven't... She blushes... Not, not in like the cartoon cheek blush. She has like a normal all over face blush where you can tell that she's actually blushing, which is like, how do you do that? But yeah, do, do you know about the first scene? Yeah. Yes. Because this so, is wonderful. It's like obviously yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis being the world's biggest stereotype of method actor, although, you know, not as much of a nightmare as many of them. He was like, well, obviously I insist that we can't meet until our first scene when the two characters meet and fall in love. So their first scene together is literally their first proper meeting which is wild i mean obviously vicky Krebs is in her mid-30s she's an experienced actress but like you're li- literally getting plopped down in your first major international role in front of fucking daniel day lewis and you've got to like fall in love with him and she's incredible for the whole film she's like a star well trips in that first scene yeah. and the trip was not scripted she oh genuinely just tripped and then she blushes and the blush wasn't obviously wasn't scripted she just blushed because she was like nervous and they kept it in the movie because it's so good. Um, it, it's just a perfect little moment. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's great. Did um, you notice that one of the dresses he designs for her to wear in the fashion show is a fashion version of her waitress outfit? Yes. I love it. That, and that's like the maroon, best. Yeah. That's the best dress in the movie, I think. I love that dress. I just, it's beautiful. And it feels less stodgy than most of the other ones. I think. I mean, I think they're all beautiful, but most of them I would not have any interest in putting. I mean, on they've my intentionally body. designed clothes that look like the things that nineteen fifties millionaire women were buying out of a fashion show, which is like right. weird, rigid. They yeah. look like fashion sketches. Yeah, and I mean, I think I could definitely conjure up in my mind like ads from magazines. Yes, that they evoke, which I mean, they were looking at ads from magazines designing yeah. them. I'm sure, but that dress. It's not that I would like wear it exactly because where on earth would I wear that dress? Like it's not like current, but it's something you can imagine yourself wearing in a more direct way, which I think was all intentional too. I mean, it's obviously like. I I really like that we don't, like in the sense that it's more of a food movie than a fashion movie, we don't see him really, we don't really see his creative process. It's not one of these films where it's like, oh, it's all about like the artist at work. We see him drawing on his notepad, but whenever we see what's actually on the notepad, we see kind of part of the page and it'll just be like a generic fashion drawing. And most of the time we will be seeing just his face. So we'll be seeing the back of the notepad while he's like creepily watching Alma. (laughs) So it's like, they don't, they really don't linger on his creative process. Well, I think what's so genius about all the clothes is that they're really, really important, obviously. And I don't just mean the special clothes that he's made but everything everybody's wearing is really significant and important and tells you so much about all the characters but they don't talk about it Mm. almost at all except in the scenes where someone has come in for a fitting and they're literally talking about the dress that is being made which makes sense and so it's all kind of there under the surface 
which adds so much to the movie, but then allows the movie to be about other stuff as opposed to just a movie about clothes, which can be fun and interesting, obviously, but I think the movie is a lot richer because it's doing so much at once. Yeah, it's just, I think, just totally genius, and everyone should go see it. I'm really glad it's gotten so many Oscar nominations, not only because it deserves them, but also because now all of a sudden, like, everyone is talking about it, and it's getting sold out in Brooklyn, and it seemed like it was kind of dead, and now it definitely, like, is well, it's not. It's also because, like, it's very hard to explain, because you cannot yes. articulate what the twist is in an advert, because that just ruins the film. No. But otherwise, you just, like, look at this film where two good-looking people fall in love in history wearing a ball gown. It's like, unless you're really going to be analytical about it, or they do, like, a really intense trailer, it's just gonna be like, oh, look, another historical drama, which yeah. obviously it's not. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that lots of middle-aged people will go to this, and some of them will be really into it, and some of them will be like, what the fuck did I just watch? Like, yeah, that was that was most of my this? audience. I actually moved seats about five minutes in, because it was just two old ladies next to me eating candy and talking, and I was like, I'm not going to be having this. This is not going to work, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my mother and her friend went and saw it, and I never received a text about it, so I feel I can perhaps infer something from that, because normally I would get an update about what my mom thought. And she, were, and I talked it up, and I just heard nothing. <laughs> and I was like, like oh, Mom, I've seen this, seen this really romantic film right? about when you marry a man twice your age, and then you well, poison him with an omelette. <laughs> well, I, t- I really talked it up, and then, like, at the end of our conversation, like, just when we were getting off the phone, I was like, oh, yeah, and there's some weird sex stuff. She was like, what? <laughs> I was like, no, there are no sex scenes. It's just... It's hard to explain. I really can't tell you. You just have to see it. And she was like, uh. There's a lot of meaningful conversations about how you're really hungry for porridge. (laughs) (laughs) There's a hungry boy. It's about appetite. Yes. Oh my God. Appetite and control. Yes. So we highly recommend it. I mean, I hope if you're still listening, you have already seen it because now you know about the poison. But if you haven't, you should go see it and then buy the album. So next week we will be discussing a topic to be determined. Black Panther is the week after that, which of course is the big thing on the horizon. Um, One of our very first episodes was about the Black Panther comics because he is yes. my favorite superhero. So, so potentially the only comics episode we ever do will be that. Uh, yes. Listen back to that as, as homework. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we'll be back next week with something else and we will let you know on Twitter what that will be. And again, if you feel so moved, we would love your support on Patreon. Pledge as little as $1, and we would really, really appreciate it. That is www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast, or you can find the link in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and you can also find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.